What's up, ladies and gentlemen? Joe Bonamassa here, and today is my supreme honor to welcome musician, guitarist, singer, writer, producer extraordinaire, the legendary Todd Rundgren to the show. Todd, I am, I, I, I have chills. Thank you very much for doing this. I'm a huge fan, and obviously been an admirer my whole life. And I just can't believe I get the opportunity to talk to you today. So thank you very much. Well, thank you for having me, Joe. Um, I also I'm a fan. Thank you. Uh, I you know I started out in a white blues band. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> so you know I have a great appreciation for other white blues men. <laughs> The, the, you know, it's, it's funny how the blues always seeps into everything, but it was just the kind of music that, that, you know, I would just keep playing the records over and over again. Tell me, tell me like how you, um, you got started because, you know, like doing my research for this, I mean, it, it is mind blowing how many different things you were involved in almost tangentially to each other, you know, record production, writing music, singing, playing in bands. Like, like, who was your host for music via the guitar or anything? Well, I, uh, it was pretty apparent that I had a, a musical mentality when I was really young. I was just like, spend hours and hours listening to music on my little RCA 45 RPM player. Right. And when uh, I had the opportunity to uh, like rent an instrument in high in uh, elementary school, thought I wanted to play the flute for starters. Right. I like the sound of it. Didn't realize how difficult it was, so I didn't make a lot of progress with that. Uh, I did. Ma I made more progress with my sister's clarinet, actually, than I did with the uh, with the flute. But ultimately. Um, I think it was sometime around when I heard Walk Don't Run by the Ventures mm -hmm. that I decided that guitar was the sound that attracted me the most and talked my parents into buying me a guitar, which came with uh, three months of guitar lessons that I completely ignored. Right, exactly. And, <laughs> and when I finally, you know, I was into the guitar and into you know, trying to put bands together and and learning every George Harrison guitar solo when the Beatles were big. And then when I got done with high school, I had like two options. I could either, I couldn't go to college. My grades weren't good enough. Right. I could have gone to tech school and learned computer programming because I knew something about that, even in high school in 1966. Or get in a band, and fortunately, I got into a band. I got into a white blues band, and uh, the rest is so-called history. After right. that, I suppose. And uh, what was the name of your first band? Was it called Money? That was my high school band. We right. Called ourselves Money. <laughs> uh, That's a little bit of projecting, my, like my best friend, You know, you yeah. always have a best friend who who you're in the band where you get like big ideas with, you know, we were going to be uh, the world's most successful high school band. Uh, we uh, forced his brother into playing bass. He yeah. had no actual musical interests at all, but we forced him to play bass because we didn't have a bass player. Right. <laughs> Went through three or four drummers and played some frat parties. Um, 
and mo and did mostly just you know all cover songs. I never even thought about writing songs of my own when I was in my high school band. Uh, but you know, a lot of Yardbirds, right? Uh, bit of Rolling Stones, occasional Beatles, uh, and through the Yardbirds, we got into you know some uh, what to us then was obscure blues players like Sonny Boy Williamson and uh, and also at one point there was a kid in our neighborhood who learned how to play blues harp which we didn't even know existed at right. that time but he turned us on to a whole bunch of, of blues while we were still in high school uh, in particular Paul Butterfield the Butterfield band right. and uh, Junior Wells and Buddy Guy Hoodoo Man yeah. Blues you know, both the first Butterfield album and that um, that Junior Wells album were just like seminal, not just, I think, in my blues education, but for pretty much anyone, you know, who wanted to play the blues. And then it all spread out to like Albert King and, um, and you know, other blues players from there. You know, the thing is, I mean, you, you, you were born in Philadelphia, grew up in Philly. And, you know, it's there was so much great music going on in that region. You know, I I come from a little bit more up north, Utica, New York. And but, you know, that whole that whole northeast corridor, there was always music. There was I think it's because of the weather. I mean, for six or eight months of the year, you know, all these kids didn't you know, you didn't really want to go outside and stuff like that. So they would practice and, you know, and, you know, the thing about the blues, you know, one of my favorites of all time and the first guy to ever give me a break on stage his name was james cotton and oh, you dear. yeah you produced his 1970 capital release the james cotton band and you wrote a lot of those songs with guys like danny korchmar and stuff like that tell me like you know um when because you when you think about todd rundgren you don't think james cotton you know, and, you know, but knowing when I, you know, you just said, you're like, oh, that seemed like a natural extension. How did you like go about writing songs um, for, for, you know, uh, for, for, for James? Cause you're credited on at least a half a dozen of those, those songs on that record. Well, that was in my, uh, sort of my early career with the uh, Albert Grossman organization and Albert, uh, was James Cotton's manager, right. as well as you know a lot of other people. He managed Paul Butterfield and um, and a bunch of folk artists, of course, Bob Dylan, Dylan. Uh, most mm -hmm. notably. And so they would put me together with all these artists. But I knew James before that because when, as I say, when I got out of high school, I got into a blues band, and we used to make regular pilgrimages to a club in New York called the Cafe Agogo. Mm -hmm. And yeah. the Cafe Gogo was a little underground uh, coffee house, I guess you would call it. And in those days, um, the uh, coffee house scene depended on underage, uh, an underage clientele. So they served no liquor at all. Right, right. You would get essentially like a flower vase full of milkshake. And right. that would be you know, your drink minimum. But everybody played there. You know, yeah. I saw just like all of the blues greats play there. James Cotton amongst them, uh, the Butterfield Band, Cream. I saw there. I sat 
like six feet from Eric Clapton's amp every night until my ears were freaking ringing. Right. And even, you know, I was such a, a, a rat around the place that I got to hang out there after hours when Eric Clapton showed up and did a jam session just for like the people who were left in the club with Howlin' Wolf and Muddy Waters. You know, right. me yeah. like, you know, a 19 year old white kid. Yeah. watching you know a history that nobody would ever hear so when it came time to do james cotton it was like oh wow this is such a golden opportunity and my my mandate at the grossman organization was sort of modernize all of his old folk acts right so the most important thing we did was put him together with a lot of uh, what were then contemporary artists uh, like Michael Bloomfield, like Johnny Winter, uh, like uh, Richie Fury from uh, Little Feet. Right. Uh, try and just, you know, modernize him in a way, not necessarily by writing uh, material that wasn't bluesy so much, but putting him together with, with younger, younger and, uh, and certainly uh, awe-stricken. <laughs> Oh, musicians, you know, to be playing with James Cotton. And he was just the sweetest guy in the world, you know, just wonderful to work with. But in that kind of way, you know, in the outsider music way, if he learned a song a certain way, he mm -hmm. was never going to unlearn it that way. Exactly. And I remember there was a ballad and he, un and he mislearned one of the notes in it. Mm -hmm. That was just, it was wrong every time he sang it it sounded wrong but there was no way we could get him to sing the right note so we sat there with a variac you know which changes the speed of the tape machine yes and every time he got to that note we would tweak the variac so <laughs> that the, the, the tape would slow down or That's speed up so that when he got to that note it would be in tune even though when he was singing it it was out of tune that's amazing um, Pre-auto tune, like now we take that for granted. You, you, you know, you put it on the computer screen. It's like, it was yeah, kind of like you know, it was kind of like auto tune, but it was manual. It was not auto. You know, I'm 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 about to start a record. Um, I'm going to play on it and kind of produce it um, with a, a, a singer uh, named Jimmy Hall, who's a, a you know a legendary Southern rock singer. And and one of the songs that I had in my little bag of covers, just in case we kind of needed a new, it was, was Kitty Boy, and you wrote it, you know? Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, and I was like, I was like, oh, this is, you know, this, in like doing the research, I'm like, oh, Todd wrote that, you know? And, you know, tell me about your journey from, you know, you were in a band called Nas, and you moved to New York, and you started working for Albert, you know? And, you know, you know did you move to New York to become a producer or, or, or a musician or a solo artist, or did you, did you, you didn't care? Just want, I just want to get involved. Well, um, when the NAS broke up, the NAS wasn't a very um, long lived phenomenon. Um, probably 18 months from the time right. that I put the band right. together till the yeah. time that I left the band. And remarkably, we got two, two actually three albums on because I had envisioned the second album as a as a double album. But uh, when we first 
went into the studio, we were looking for a producer. Mm-hmm. And we didn't know exactly what a producer did. But I made the assumption that if a record sounded good, it had to do with a producer, not knowing what the engineer's job was at that right. point. And as it turned out, uh, our first album was produced by a guy named Bill Trout. And the reason why we got him is he produced a record that we liked the sound of. Uh, we originally wanted like an English producer. I wanted the producer who had done the uh, uh, John Mayall and the Blues Breakers album. Mike Vernon. Yeah, Mike Vernon, you know, because I thought he had something to do with the sound of it. Right. And really he didn't, you know, he just probably organized the record. But we kept getting turned down by English producers. So we got an American producer and American producers weren't the same as English producers. Um, English producers, as we learned, sometimes got creatively involved, like um, George Martin would be involved in the Beatles records. But American producers were simply there to make sure that the session didn't run long. So that it would cost the record label money if you went into a double session. So he didn't give us the sound we wanted, and I took it upon myself to start messing around you know, remixing the album after he left. And then when we got to the second project, I declared myself producer from the get-go. Right. And therefore, I was going to mix the record. Uh, The manager of the NAS had a partner. And the partner actually left before I quit the band. But the partner went to work for Albert Grossman. Mm -hmm. And his, his mission at Albert Grossman was to find young talent because of Albert's catalog of artists were all like folk artists and blues artists and they were all getting older and the whole record business was changing so they wanted young blood and so this guy had observed me you know learning to be a producer on the NAS records and invited me to come to the Albert Grossman organization Essentially, you'd be a producer and engineer. Right. Because after I quit the NAS, I was on the street. I didn't have a band. I'm not even sure I had an instrument at that right. point. Right. And I was living with clothiers in the West Village. Right. And doing like lights in a discotheque or something like yeah. that. So essentially plucked me off the street and dropped me into this milieu where there was all these artists whose records had become irrelevant. Um, and just started pairing me up with them. Mm-hmm. And the first significant pairing was uh, me engineering uh, Jesse Winchester's record. Jesse Winchester was a uh, conscientious objector to the Vietnam War, so he left the country and was living in Canada. Right. And so we had to do the album in Toronto, which was actually the original stomping grounds for the band. With, yeah, you know, Robbie and all those guys, right? Yeah, all those guys. They were playing with, um, what's his name? A rock and roll legend from Canada, uh, whose name eludes me at the moment. And it'll probably come back to me at an inopportune time. But, right. Uh, but essentially, you know, they were already a band backing up this Canadian artist. So we went to Toronto and I engineered Jesse Winchester's first album. And I did, uh, they were impressed enough that they 
that they made me the engineer for the band's next album, which was Stage Fright. And that was like, from a production engineering standpoint, that was my big break. Right. Because, you know, some people know about Jesse Winchester, but at that point, the band was the biggest band in the world. Oh, and yeah. that's how my career as a producer kind of got, um, got boosted. And then after doing a couple of projects, I, I was still writing songs and I got ANSI to make a vanity project and I asked them if I could. They gave me a budget and that was when I suddenly became an artist on my own. And, you know, I mean, like, the kind of music, you know, you've, you've done over the years is, I mean, like, you know, just seeing how many things you were doing all at the same time. But then I read, you know, I read you almost you almost quit to become a computer engineer. I go, ah, he knows how to he knows how to carp, you know, you like put things together. And, you know, what's the, what's the word carp? You know, like, you know what I mean? It's like you're doing all this stuff at the same time and and different styles of music. And that's why I always admired about your production and your solo work. You could be working with, you know, like like you said, James Cotton. You know, or 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 you know, meatloaf, and and then doing your own solo records, which sounded completely different. I'm like, going, how are you doing the left brain, right brain thing? It's like, you know, did you just have all this music in you, and did you ever sleep in the 1970s? <laughs> uh, well, I never made a commitment to a genre, right? Which most artists do at some point. You know, they, uh, for instance, Hall and Oates is a case in point. Hall & Oates' first couple of records, I did their third record, mm -hmm. and their first couple of records were really eclectic, you know, some of it was like folky sounding, uh, some of it was uh, jazzy sounding, stuff like that, very little of it was R&B sounding, yes. you know, they were kind of an eclectic group, and on their second record, I guess, they had a big hit called She's Gone. Yeah, And it was like an R&B hit, you know, it sounded right. like a Jerry Ragamoy production. And uh, and then we did their um, their third album, which was called War Babies. And Daryl was still, you know, very much an eclectic writer. He was writing mm -hmm. all kinds of stuff. He was being heavily influenced in, in to some extent by David Bowie and, you know, and other kinds of, uh, you know, auteur people who right. are writing all their own material and that sort of thing. And um, War Babies reflected that. Mm -hmm. And we turned it into their label, which was Atlantic at the time. And Atlantic said, ah, there's no, there's no She's Gone on here. Right. And they dropped the band. Right. And yeah. it was at that point that I think they realized, okay, it's going to be She's Gone for the foreseeable future. <laughs> and so right. they just started writing in that genre. You know, they stopped writing and like folky genres or jazzy genre. You know, everything was now like white R&B genre, and that brought them huge success. And so I think that's the way most artists think, even though they might have like more eclectic ideas in their head, that, you know, success won't come to them unless they you know, like focus on one sort of style of music so that the audience will be untroubled, <laughs> you know, right. the audience will know what to expect, you know, and you build your career around that. And being a producer kind of absolved me of that mm -hmm. because I was making such a good living as a producer. I never thought about, um, gee, I have to settle down and do this 
right. genre for the sake of my own commercial success. Otherwise, I won't be able to make records anymore, which right. was true for most artists. Unless they had some kind of success, their labels would no longer finance their music. So I never had to think that way. And so my <laughs> the end result was that by the time I got to my third album, I was starting to understand songwriting and was starting to slip into a genre. And that made something anything the most successful record I ever did. Right. But by the time I was done making it, I thought, I don't want to write any more of those songs. You know, yeah. I already wrote more than I intended to write of those kind of songs. And I have to write more of the music that's actually in my head, yes. you know, which is just a, more of a panorama of musical ideas than just one genre. Yeah, you know, um, in my formative years, we used to take a little bit of Icon, the last track. I oh, yeah. And I, we used to do it. It was based on like one of the opening riffs of, of the of the song. And we just kind of would get into it and then it would just even out. And then we would just jam for like 10 minutes. And then we then we go into some yes things. And I was like, yeah, let's let's do something off of Utopia. Because, you know, like, again, it's like those records. Um, that's how it was introduced to you was through Utopia. And to me, it was it was the guitar playing and the sound the experimental nature of it but as a blues guy i always heard the blues in utopia i know it, it may sound weird to you for me to say that but i it it, it it was slightly anchored in 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 blues but it would go in so many different places because you you would anchor it with the guitar playing and 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 these kind of movements within the music well the the point of utopia um for me anyway was really a uh, guitar playing opportunity. Right. Um, by the time I got to my third record, uh, something, anything, I was doing most of the writing on piano. Mm -hmm. And I had struggled, you know, for so long trying to become a competent guitar player that when the focus, at least the songwriting focus, moved to the piano. I started to feel like I was losing something or that or that I didn't want to waste all of the effort I had put in, you know, to trying trying to master the instrument. So Utopia was formed in part just as a way for me to play more guitar. Right. Uh, right. <laughs> and my influences were so um, you know, were essentially bluesy and maybe more specifically Yardbirdsy in mm -hmm. in that the Yardbirds produced you know they were guitar factory guitar player factory in a way you know? oh yeah uh, and I was so influ influenced at first by Jeff Beck and then by Eric Clapton you know that that was sort of built in that was baked into my musical cake but Utopia was probably more inspired by um, by John McLaughlin. Right. And the whole fusion thing that was happening at the time. Mm -hmm. um, so the guitar playing wasn't simply a compendium of blues riffs. The great thing about Utopia was that I was learning from the other guys in the band, you know, things that were more jazz oriented or funk oriented. But it would have to be said that there wasn't anybody in Utopia who wasn't also a blues fan. 
you know, wasn't also like, it's kind of where we all started. It was, I was thinking about it the, the other night, what a, a kind of strange evolution the blues itself has taken in that, you know, we have a first generation of blues, which is like Robert Johnson and mm-hmm. big Bill Brunzi and blind some fruit, you know, yeah, blind lemon Jefferson. There's a blind cantaloupe, something or other. Yeah. I don't know. You know, there was that first generation. Then there was a second generation, which was, uh, you know, the James Cotton's, the Muddy Waters, the things like that. But the third generation was essentially white. Mm-hmm. Because by the time it got to the third generation, black players wanted to do something else. They wanted to do R&B, um, other kinds of music, even rock and roll. But, you know, like Lil Richard or something like that. You know, by the time it got to the third generation, black players lost interest in the blues. And then suddenly white players were the ones who picked up the torch of the blues until another generation of black players came along. And right. got interested in the blues again. So, I mean, you and I are kind of like part of that stopgap measure, you know, of, you know, we just became more interested in the genre than what would have been logically, you know, the next generation of, of blues players. And uh, that's kind of, you know, it's kind of a, a strange thing, but I don't think it's necessarily unusual in the entire world of music. Uh, you got to find your audience wherever they are, you know? Yeah, I mean, like, you know, I came up, like, the first time I heard I Ain't, I Ain't Superstitious, it was sung by Rod Stewart, and Jeff Beck played guitar. And Exactly, you know. And, and the uh, first, time, first time I saw James Cotton play live, it was for pretty much an all-white audience. Right. You know, it was a, a bunch of white kids, you know, and one of these crazy shows that would have, like, a blues artist like James Cotton a folk artist like maybe Odetta, mm-hmm. and then the Stooges, you know, right. <laughs> something like that. The shows were really crazy and non genre non specific in those days. And that's when a lot of those, you know, second generation blues players started to gain what essentially was an entirely white audience. Yeah, BB King tells a story on film that he showed up to the Fillmore West for the first time in like the late 60s and he thought he was in the wrong place because the entire his entire audience was like white hippie kids and he went to yeah. Bill Graham and he was like he's like he's like I, i'm not I, we must have made a mistake in the book he's like no no they're here for you you know and that was that was the that was the the, the shift in in the in the in the music and they're on acid right <laughs> yeah he had the acid light shows back then you know <laughs> it, are there any similarities? Because you were you were saying like you know with James Cotton, if he learned it a certain way, that was it. It's like it's ingrained. Are there any similarities in producing blues artists in like punk punk bands like the New York Dolls, XTC, you know stuff like that? You were you 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 produced the New York Dolls for legendary first record and XTC and 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 genres like that. I mean, are there any similarities in like the kind of like, well, these are musicians that just do it a certain way, so it's my job to just capture it? Or are they more malleable? Oh, no, with the New York Dolls, it was definitely, that that was the apotheosis of white blues, you know, in that, no, they weren't going to learn it any other way. There were no musical suggestions I could make, except maybe, uh, you know, don't snort so much cocaine. 
before the next take, you know, because you're playing faster than the rest of the band. But, <laughs> but otherwise, no, it was like, it was more like just hoping that they would all play together at some point. And, right. you know, that the distractions would fade into the background momentarily and they would, um, you know, and they would all kind of like focus and not, and somebody wouldn't like screw up too badly. And in that sense, I guess, you know, it is the white analog of, you know, the original blues <laughs> in a way in that they, uh, you know, there was, a, there was kind of like, a, you know, a certain lid on it. And I don't know whether it was self-conscious or not, but, you know, it was the, uh, they were like a seminal band in the, in the so-called punk rock movement, not because they called themselves punk rock right in those days it was just the new york scene there were a bunch of bands in new york and they got it into their heads that anybody could play yeah as a matter of fact that you know the, the more of a naif you were you know the yeah. better you know if you learn how to play your instrument you were a poser you know you're not right. supposed to learn things you know you're just supposed to play it. pick it up yeah. and play it that's yeah. it yeah um, it's it's funny. I was, and, you know, that was the movement that caused uh, that caused a bunch of rock critics to form their own bands because it was finally something they could understand. <laughs> it was attainable. And, uh, and so, yeah, it's really just like it's almost like field recording, you know, almost like going out and, you know, finding some obscure um, gospel group somewhere and capturing them for the Library of Congress. Yeah, like it's Alan only going to, you know, it's it, it's either going to work or it's not going to work. But in those days, you couldn't even talk to them like they were a group. Mm-hmm. You know, they were a bunch of randomly assembled personalities. <laughs> right. Um, on a percentage basis, how much is the art of producing records psychology and how much is it trying to to herd cats? Well, when I first started out, I was not aware of the importance of the psychological aspect of what a producer does. It's not to say that I have um, fully adapted to the role uh, of psychoanalyst, you know, when I'm in the studio. It's really, to me, like the last resort. It's like when you can't like convince somebody on musical terms and then you have to like just play on their ego, <laughs> something like that. Right. It's likely the reason why I never did produce Janis Joplin's first record. Right. Um, I was uh, in Mill Valley doing all the prep work for the record. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, the her band, which was called the Full, which would be called the Full Tilt Boogie Band, was just a, an assemblage, a temporary assemblage of musicians who were there to learn songs so that she could sing them and decide whether she wanted to do them. But I had never met an artist who was so uninto the into the process <laughs> yeah. of like making a record, getting ready to make a record, anything to do with the record itself. Yeah. If you recall, it, um, Big Brother and the Holding Company, which was Janis Joplin's first band, their first record was live. Most of it was live. Yeah. And the reason why is because she just hated being in the studio. 
Yeah. Because there's no audience. You know, mm -hmm. she only enjoyed it if the, if she got some response to what she was doing. And I only learned that what I learned it when it was too late. <laughs> right. um, somebody sent us a song from the Grossman office. He had uh, uh, songwriters on uh, on salary there, and somebody had come up with a song that they thought would work for Janice. And they essentially said, "You're doing this." Mm -hmm. No, didn't ask us if we were doing. It. They said, right. "You're doing this." Right. And they also said, "And here's another idea. You're doing it with the Butterfield Band." Yeah. <clears throat> And they had never worked before, worked together before. There was no history between them. They were both just managed by Albert. And so they put us in a studio in L.A., me and Janice and the Butterfield Band, to try and learn and get a take on this song. Mm -hmm. And never did, it never caught on. It never just, nobody at any point thought, oh, this is great. You yeah. know, everyone felt a little put upon by having to do that particular song. And that was when I realized that Janice didn't like being in a studio, you know. Yeah. Yeah, just little enthusiasm for the process at all. And that's when they got a different producer. They got um, Paul Rothschild, mm -hmm. now I remember, who uh, was a producer for The Doors. And he was like the polar opposite of me. I was very much, the first thing that I worry about is the music. Yeah. You know, is this a good song? Is this worth everybody's effort? Right. Is it worth our effort to do? And is it worth the audience's effort to listen to? Listen. You know, mm -hmm. so that's the first thing that I worry about. Second thing I worry about is, you know, can we please perform this with some enthusiasm, you know, or, right. or sincerity or something? You know, that's the next thing. Very last thing I worry about is the sound, because the audience doesn't worry about the sound. Right. They, whenever they hear it, they think that's what it's supposed to sound like. You know, yeah. But if it's a crappy song, they won't be interested in hearing it. Right. And if it's, you know, and if it's a lackluster performance, why should they want to hear it? So uh, those were always my priorities. Paul Rothschild, in my estimation, knew very little about music. Actually, mm -hmm. you know, he could never say, "Could you make that?" You know, G minor seven instead of G minor. He could never do that. You know, right. he wouldn't know what that meant. But yeah. he would know how to say, that was great. Mm -hmm. That was great. So let's just do one more, you know. Yeah. And eventually, you know, by coaxing one more performance out of him, you, you eventually get to the performance that you need. But I was never really very good at, at that part of it, of, you know, massaging the artist to the point that, you know, I refined my process to be, first of all, Send me all the material that you want on the record because right. we don't want to go in the studio and suddenly be staring at each other because we ran out of material. Yeah. And uh, I you know, would like us all to have the confidence when we go into the studio that we've got all the material we need to make the record. Second, it would be great if you knew the material before you came into <laughs> the studio. You know, ideally, right. you played it in front of an audience, you know, so you know what works and, you know, and and where to put your emphasis, and that sort of thing. And that's and, a lost uh, art. That, that's that a lost process art. has worked out pretty well, actually. Yeah. You know, that's a lost art. I mean, usually bands had the material, and they toured it for months before, and then they would make the record. Now it's you make the record, then go tour for months. The whole process has kind of gotten reversed, you know, because we live in the age of now, like, you know, your whole new record could be put on YouTube in 
before you even get in the studio and record it, you know? Um, you know, one of the things I, I, I wanted to ask you about was, um, obviously we were talking about, like, I, I call them the British Three Kings, Beck Page Clapton, you know, the Yardbirds people. And, <laughs> and, and, you know, you were tasked with producing Grand Funk Railroad, and you, you came up with the, you, you, your analysis of the band is like, okay, we can't make another cream here. They're not these kind of players, but they are from Detroit and we're going to make it. So it's going to be, let's, let's celebrate the music of Detroit within this, 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 um, uh, you know, the context of this three piece group. And, and you produced a record called we're an American band, which I'm sorry, it didn't sell that many copies because I mean, those, those <laughs> kids had promise, you know? <laughs> well, um, it was kind of a golden opportunity and also kind of characteristic of the way my production career went. You know, I was, I would commonly be put together with problem acts, you know, right. people who had issues getting a record done, that mm -hmm. sort of thing. Uh, especially in the case of like Badfinger, because by the time I got involved, it was the third pass at making a record. You know, they had already gone through two producers. You inherited um, the project from George Harrison. Yeah, they had gone through. Uh, Jeff Emmerich had done a whole album with them. He was uh, uh, the the engineer on the Beatles' kind of last records, something like Sgt. Pepper and onward. Um, and I guess the American label didn't. Uh, were weren't excited about the end product, and then George got involved, and then got disinvolved because of the concert for Bangladesh, mm -hmm. and that's when I wound up with that project, and you know, turning what was a dumpster fire into a hit record suddenly, right. you know, certainly burnished my career, and so Grand Funk realized that they need realized they needed a transformation of some kind at that point because yeah. people were making all sorts of assumptions about the band mm -hmm. um, that you know they weren't very good songwriters as evidenced by the fact that they would write like just kind of like a st song structure and jam for 20 minutes you know? right right because they they thought of themselves as like cream but they were not they weren't cream you know they were not that sophisticated and um and they came to their senses they got rid of their old management which was part of the problem in terms of making their records because their manager was producing their records and he was a terrible producer right. and uh and got to the business of writing songs instead of just simply frameworks for jamming over right um and had the whole record planned out beforehand they had all the material, but they also knew that it would be called We're an American Band, and they also knew that the lead single would be the title song, mm -hmm. and they also knew exactly when it would be released, and so that, you know, the entire production of the album was all on a kind of like a strict timeline, in a way. We went into the studio the first day, uh, Criterion Studios in Miami, and recorded the track for We're an American Band, and then the next day we came in and finished it, did the vocals and other overdubs, mixed it, and went immediately into the mastering lab that was in Criteria right. and cut the single. And we didn't even have a B-side yet because we hadn't recorded anything else. Right. But, but we cut the single, 
uh, and it went off to the pressing plant. And in less than a week, the uh, the DJ copies were out at radio. And this was uh, in the days when you could chart a record without actually having sold anything. You could chart a record on pre-orders, you know, right. whatever uh, record stores would would order before you would actually really sold anything. And so the amazing thing was a week after that, week after we mastered the single, the single is in the top 40. Right. <laughs> it's already had <laughs> <at> radio <coughs> and it's in the top 40 and we're still working on the record. Yeah. And by the time we finish the record, it's in the top five. Wow. And then it goes to number one, you know, like the week after we finish the record and stays there for several weeks and then we had a second hit single off of the record as well and then we did another record and had a hit single off of that so essentially it was a transformation of a, of a jam band into a top 40 band and all done according to a formula that fortunately for everyone just came off like clockwork yeah it's you know it, it, it's it's this right song at the right time at the right production and everything and that's you know that's that's how those things explode you know like you, you mentioned before like um you know you, you you were a bit of a a magnet for for troubled productions and you inherit these things and make diamonds you know i always tell people it's like never change a tire for your friend because that'll get around because the next time another friend needs a tire change they're going to call you you know <laughs> yeah and um one of the things i wanted to ask you about was and it was a place I always wanted to work, but I never got to because I, I just didn't have a record deal and a reason to be there at the time was Bearsville Studio. Um, and that was, you know, being from upstate New York, that was always like Bearsville's. That's the you know, place Todd Rundgren built and did all his records. And, and, and it was like this mythical place. I never got to, uh, to work there. What was it about that studio that you know, because to me that that almost is like the American Abbey Road or the you know the, the East Coast Capitol or you know whatever it's in the you know halcyon of 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 great studios. What was it about that room that you took to so well and were able to you know do projects there like you know like that out of hell which you inherited and there was no deal and you 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 made that record. Well, I pretty much know the entire history of that room. Mm -hmm. Um, because it didn't start in that room. Uh, Stage Fright was the first big production that I got involved in for Bearsville. And we recorded that record, most of it, um, in the Bears, in the Woodstock Playhouse, which was a summer stock theater in right. the town of Woodstock. <clears throat> and Albert bought a uh, a remote truck, a remote mm -hmm. recording truck. And we took all the equipment out of the truck and we put it into the prop tent behind the playhouse. Right. And that's where I spent, you know, the the, the summer that we did stage fright, in yeah. the, mostly in the prop tent behind the playhouse. Mm -hmm. And it was sweltering hot in the daytime and freezing cold at night because it's yeah. up in the Catskills. Yeah. And when we finished the basic recording, we set about doing overdubs and a little bit more 
uh, recording. Um, all of that was done in a couple of studios in New York City. And when we moved out of the Playhouse and went to New York City, they took the uh, equipment, the board and everything, and moved it into what was a brand new, what they called Studio C, which was the small room. Uh, or it might have been Studio B. There was a huge room that they intended to do like symphonies in. Mm. You know, that was Studio A. And that studio actually almost never got used. Right. And indeed, for many years, it didn't even have a console in it. You know, it was just right. a big room. As a, as a matter of fact, for a while, it was my video studio. Right. Instead of an actual recording room. So Studio C or Studio B, whatever it was, the smaller room. They moved all the equipment into there. <clears throat> and they were still actually working on the room itself. And it was one of John Storick's first room. And, and probably the name John Storick is unfamiliar to the average person, but John Storick became probably the first big name in studio design, designing studios. And he's designed them all over the world. Some of them are like multi-million dollar you know, creations. And that was one of his first um, significant creations. So they moved all the equipment into, into that room and uh, wound up doing the final mixes of stage fright in the room. But there was, but we didn't record anything. That was all done in the control room. Nothing was done in the actual <clears throat> studio itself. Eventually they got around, they got it finished and then uh, called the very first session in the studio and I was there to supervise the session. And the very first session was uh, Van Morrison. Huh. And it was right before his big string of hit records for Warner Brothers. Right. You know, Domino and, uh, and uh, Jackie Wilson said and all his other great songs uh, before that. So he was kind of test flying his whole band and his new material. And he came into the studio and we worked for like a couple hours. And then he called the session. He hated the sound. Oh, wow. Hated the sound of the studio. <laughs> and so that was the very first session. So I'm not sure what they did after that, you know. But, yeah. And I did occasional sessions in there, but I had my own studio, actually. Right. That I did most of my records in. And the most significant project I ever did was Bad Out of Hell in that same studio. Right. Tell me, like... Um one of the things like people don't know about you is like well maybe a lot of people do but but you're you're equal parts musician producer and inventor you know you're one of the first people to embrace the you know computer technology in in the in the you know you even invented a tablet for that you licensed to apple and in all of this stuff and you know when, when i listen to music now it, it's it, it people you know i don't know anybody who's done a record on tape you know, it's that that's that's a bygone era, you know, and you were one of the, you know, pioneering producers to just go, no, this, let's embrace this digital thing. When you listen to records now, um, do you think it's gone too far in the, the, the way you can manipulate sound or is it just beginning and, it, and music 100 years from now will be almost unrecognizable to the music that we, we listen to today? Well, first, I'd like to clarify a couple of misconceptions. Uh, I wouldn't call myself an inventor per se, in that you know, I have not ever made a thing. Right. The um, 
I am, uh, I can legitimately call myself a, a computer programmer or mm-hmm. a software developer right. because I've actually had software products come out. And uh, my first association with Apple was to write software for a hardware device they had called a graphics tablet. Right. Um, and that was the first software that I ever published. And then after that, I got like a screensaver called Flowphaser published at a certain point and you know i've done other software related things so i'm confident calling myself a computer programmer but um but not so confident calling myself an inventor but my relationship to technology is not necessarily that i want to that I'm always an early adopter. I'm not always an early adopter. I try and figure out, you know, how useful a certain thing is for me. Mm -hmm. And if it's useful, then I'll learn how to use it. But if I don't see the use in it, I won't necessarily make the effort. So when it came to digital recording, I held on to the analog for a long time. Right. (laughs) I didn't jump right on it. Mostly it was the expense. Mm -hmm. You know, it was almost an order of magnitude more expensive to move from analog to digital in the early days. Right. And so I kind of avoided it. And when I did go, I went, I went with a kind of a weird, a hybrid intermediate technology called, um, uh, I'm trying to remember, but essentially it was using VHS machines to record audio, digital audio. Oh, ADATs? ADATs, that's it, right. right. For a while, I got into the ADATs. And I didn't get the, into the ADATs necessarily because they were digital. I got into the ADATs because I was reading a book about the Beatles recording sessions and how they did their recording. And, of course, they started out when there was when everything was mono <laughs> and, then, right. and, and evolved until probably 8-track. You know, they didn't get... They didn't make records much past a track, but their process was mostly like you would record a track onto onto stereo tape, and then you would bounce to another stereo tape and add anything that you wanted, and you might do that several times. Right. And so the process of making for the records for them was a lot of bouncing back and forth with stereo tapes, and that allowed them to go back and. You know, if they had sort of wandered off into the weeds with an idea, mm-hmm. they say, oh, let's go back to that take we had two weeks ago, because they never recorded over anything. You know, they kept right. everything that he did. say, so, oh, let's go back to that thing two weeks ago, and then they start over again, you know, bouncing stuff back and forth. Right. And so I got into the ADATs, because while there were only eight tracks to an ADAT, you could eject the tape and stick another tape in and have as many takes as you wanted of something. Right. So you could go back, you know, you could rec- you could recover old takes and, and that sort of thing. So that's why I got into it, not necessarily because it was digital. And in the end, it turned out to be a big pain in the ass anyway. Right. So I didn't go fully commit to digital until like late in the 90s when I got my first Pro Tools system. Mm-hmm. And uh, at first, you know, I got into it. It was convenient in some ways again more expensive than analog in other ways 
But I managed to get through that phase because DigiDesign, the company that did Pro Tools, was that was their only product, right. was Pro Tools. And so you knew somebody at DigiDesign, you know, and you say, oh, I'm having a problem here, which you often did, yeah. <laughs> you know, because it involved disk drives, you know, and, and hardware cards that plugged in to your computer and, and external interfaces. It was, you know, a really elaborate technical sort of system. And then Avid bought DigiDesign, and then you couldn't get a hold of anybody anymore. Yeah. And I found, you know, the weather out here is especially humid. I'm in Hawaii, by the way, right. and have been for 25 years. And I would go on the road for six months and come back, turn my system on, and smoke would come out of the yeah, carts, you know. Yeah, the, the, the salt air, it corrodes yeah, everything. the whole nightmare scenario every time I, I turned the system on, so... I eventually went to, you know, software only solution called Reason. Mm -hmm. And now I'm fully committed, fully digital, blah, blah, blah. Doesn't require any special hardware. And I know the people at the company in case I get in trouble. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, it's been kind of like I backed into everything. But I only do it if it's sort of, you know, if it works for me and it doesn't hinder the process. Right. You know, you have to still be able to make progress and make music. You know, you don't want the technology to get in the way all the time. You know, it's funny because, like, you know, my first solo album I did on analog, and we still own, we still own like fifty reels of 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 analog, you know, you know, Ampex tape or whatever, and and the then all the rest of my I did digitally, and my entire catalog of forty five albums, both live everything, can fit on a hard drive that's this big. Exactly. <laughs> you know, and you're like going, this is your life in music? This, this, you know. Smaller this, than that, actually. Smaller than yeah. that, yeah. And, you know, I mean, you were, I mean, you were doing like, you know, interactive records and, and, and things like that. And, you know, uh, tell people, speaking of interactive, tell people about the, 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 the virtual tour that, that, that you're going to do. Because, you know, like all of us, we can't play in front of humanoids and we'd like to keep playing just to prove we can Exactly. Yeah. Um, well, it was uh, just a couple of years ago. I started to change the way that I toured uh, to try and get um, more of the traveling out of it. You mm -hmm. know, the worst part about touring, as anyone will tell you, is the traveling part. The playing is right. great, but the yeah. traveling is the worst. And uh, so I changed my touring. Uh, to be more sort of uh, primary markets than than going to every market. You know, typical yeah. routing will be you'll play a big city like Chicago, and then you'll wind up playing some smaller cities to get to the next big city. Right. And a long time ago, I sort of mandated that, you know, my ideal thing is two on and one off mm -hmm. <clears throat> because... I sing for at least two hours a night, and I can do that two nights in a row, but then I need a day to rest. Right. And so we changed the touring to be like two, at least two nights in a major market, mm -hmm. and then two days off, and then fly to the next market. Right. And that gives, um, that gives the crew plenty of time to move everything to the, right. next, to the next city gives me plenty of time to rest 
also eliminates, you know, traveling by bus. Right. You know, because you won't rent a bus to travel once every five days. Yeah. So wind up flying most of the time. Mm-hmm. Um, so I find myself ever more often in the airport waiting for a delayed flight and panicking, you know, because am I going to get to the freaking gig? And then the flight is canceled and it, tows, it goes into total freak out mode with right. my travel agent, you know, trying to find some way to get to the yeah. gig. And it occurs to me that this is going to happen more and more often because the primary cause is climate change. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, ever more often there are storms, uh, particularly in the Atlantic, and yeah. that'll shut down a major hub like Miami or Atlanta or, or New York, LaGuardia, something like that. And once a major hub gets shut down, it like ricochets for the entire system. Right. So I started to think, well, what, what do I do if I can't get to the gig? You know, mm-hmm. it's, it isn't just uh, flying. Even if you were doing a bus tour, you couldn't have toured California last summer. The whole state was on fire. Right, know? exactly, exactly. You know, and you couldn't have toured half of Texas. It was underwater. You know, right. so this is going to happen like more and more often. How do I get to the, how do I get to the gig? You know, when everything is against me getting to the gig, and it started to occur to me that maybe we do like a virtual thing. We set up in a venue, and then we broadcast to other venues because right. almost all venues have video now. So you sell tickets just like you usually would, and people have the same sort of concert experience that they would have had except that you're not there, you know, right. you're, you're doing the show virtually. Well, then we have a pandemic and the audience can't go to the gig either. And right. that's when you realize you've got to go full virtual. You've got to bring a show to their, to their home. And now you're losing, you're losing a lot of the experience once, yeah. once you do that. Yeah. Because now they're not going to the gig. And all the things that make it sort of special, mm-hmm. you know, you, when you or I, you know, say that we're coming to somebody's town, they'll make plans around it. You know, a lot of people will rush out and get their favorite seats. You right. know, so you'll get a lot, you'll get a big burst of ticket sales right off the yeah. bat, you know, yeah. and then they'll uh, hire the babysitter and they'll, you know, maybe make plans for dinner. So yeah. it'll be a whole event for them. And they'll go to the gig and they'll see people that sometimes they only see when they go out to, you know, see another gig. They live at the opposite end of town or something like that. But they'll, yeah. they'll see familiar faces and, you know, they'll have a whole, you know, night of it. How do we, you know, how do we maintain as much of that as, as possible? <clears throat> and the big component about it is, is, that, is that locality. You know, what's unique about that place? Not simply for the people who live there, because they know what's unique about it. Yeah. You know, for us, the players, you know, it's not just, you know, the traveling is horrible, but being someplace is not necessarily horrible. Most every place that you go on tour, you've probably been to before, and you know, uh, you see fans that mm-hmm. you've seen before, you recognize them. There are walks you like to take and, and landmarks you might like to see restaurants you like to eat at, you know, particular hotel you like to stay at, that sort of thing, you know. You enjoy that locality as much as 
They do, maybe more because you're only visiting. Right. So the biggest challenge in terms of doing a virtual tour, which we're doing, starting on uh, February 14th, we'll play 25 cities, 25 shows, uh, each in a different major market. <clears throat> and each one of those will be localized. Uh, essentially, um, for the audience as much as we can, you know, mm -hmm. as much as we can make it feel local for them, but just as importantly for us, the performers. Right. You know, 25 shows in the same venue is almost like being in a Holiday Inn. You know, it's it's Vegas. Like, it's getting close to Vegas. Know, or yeah. or right. Las Vegas residency or something right. like that. You know, uh, All of that locality is going out of it. So we're going to self-hypnotize. Mm -hmm. uh, for every city that we play, we'll completely dress the backstage area like we were there. And put up okay. like posters of local landmarks, you know, and have the local newspapers laying around and get catering from an eatery in that city if we can. Right. That's great. Or at idea. least get the recipe, you right. know, and cook right. it for ourselves. And set the clocks to the local time where we're playing. Right. Which is why we're doing everything out of Chicago. So we won't be like totally, you know, otherwise I would have done it from Hawaii, but that. I mean, we'd be playing shows at three in the afternoon. So yeah, um, yeah. So doing it from a cent central time zone takes the edge off in terms of right. you know, our playing the shows at in different time zones. So yeah, it's a whole exercise in convincing ourselves we're there as much as convincing the audience we're there because they're already there. It's a great idea. The fact you dress up the backstage. Well, tonight it looks like the Chicago Theater. You know, to, you know, tomorrow night it's it's the Beacon or you know whatever. And it's and it's like that's a great idea. You know, because I mean, people. What I'm finding out, people are clamoring for. They they just they want to go see shows again. They 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 miss live music. They miss the connection with their artists. And you know, and a, you know, and a lot of artists, you know, you know. Miss the connection with the audience. I, I think we that, that's fantastic. That's a it's a great idea. That's the, that's the coolest virtual, um, you know, tour I, I've heard of. The fact that you're 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 localizing it and and making it so it's like tonight feels like Cleveland and San Francisco yeah. and you know stuff like that. It's also it's also a very dangerous idea. <laughs> yeah, ways. you could ruin it for the I rest had, of us. Well, I had first of all I had to convince you know Live Nation who's been doing my tours lately to even allow me to do it because I had already committed to a tour with them. Right. And when they moved it from February to this coming October, I said, well, now you have to let me do this experiment. But it is an experiment. You know, we're learning a lot all the time. And, you know, by the time we do the first gig, I'll be I'll be committed to the tune of about a million dollars to okay. pull this off. Yeah, it's and not cheap. At yeah. this point, ticket sales would not justify that because the whole dynamic is different right uh people are smart enough to know that it, it isn't a real gig you know it's a virtual gig so they won't rush out like they normally do you know right. to get a particular seat they'll probably stall as long as possible especially considering you know the that a lot of people are in you know dicey financial straits at this point mm -hmm. and it's also, I think, affected people's ability to focus on other things, you know, what's happening now. Right. Because since we announced the tour, we've had 
We've had an election. We had post-election controversy and a runoff election, a riot in the Capitol. But, you know, hopefully things are going to settle down pretty soon and people will start thinking, okay, now I'm bored. (laughs) What am I going to do? And I'm going to be pretty much the only show in town. No kidding. You know, I, 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 people ask me, like, we did a live stream at the Ryman Auditorium for the same reasons, centrally located, you know, okay, the, the people in Europe have to stay up late and people in Hawaii will get up early in Australia. And um, as a concert promoter, because we promote our own shows, people are asking, like, what, okay, so what are the ticket sales like and what it's, what, what's doing something like that? Like, like, I said, it's the worst as a concert promoter because it's, it's like doing a GA show walk-up ticket only you know you have all this money on production and we started to see big ticket sales about 72 hours from the event all of a sudden the graph just goes like that and you're like oh because there's they're not worried about front row everybody's front row because they're watching on their phone or they're telling it is a it is a crazy thing i would be remiss as a guitar collector and I would get tons of crap from my guitar collecting friends as, but, uh, as we wrap up here. If I didn't ask you about a particular guitar you used to own called The Fool. And my question is, is, is did you get it from Jackie Lomax? I got it from Jackie Lomax. My, right. my history with The Fool... <clears throat> Is somewhat connected to my history with Eric Clapton. You know, right. I, I admitted I was just like total Eric Clapton fanboy when I was eighteen. Yeah. You know, you know everybody when they heard that Blues Breakers record, you know, it was like your balls fell on the floor. You know, and everybody realized entirely new ball game now. You know, somebody has has defined you know a direction. This is where you're all going now. Right. And yeah. so uh, the first time I laid eyes on The Fool was the first time Cream played in the United States. Mm-hmm. You know, I had seen uh, pictures of Eric Clapton before, but I had never seen him play live and I had never seen Cream play live. The only thing I knew was like pictures from the album cover. <clears throat> and it was a. Uh, Murray the K show. Murray the K was a DJ <clears throat> in New York, and he would occasionally do these rock extravaganzas in uh, in a theater in Brooklyn, like a Paramount Theater or something right. like that. And uh, acts would come on, and they'd do like two songs, mm-hmm. and they do like five shows a day, something like yeah, right, that. Right. And this particular show, the headliners were like, it was like Mitch Ryder. Most Detroit Wheels. Right. And Wilson Pickett. They traded finishing the show, but you saw Mitch Ryder and Wilson Pickett. They wrapped the show up. But then there was like the Blues Project and uh, the Blues Magoos. (laughs) Everybody had blues in their name. Right. And also on the show were the first American appearances of The Who and Cream. Wow. So the first time I saw them live was the Murray the K show. And they both knocked my dick in the dirt, but for different reasons. Right. When you saw the Who for the first time, you thought, "This is 
this is where rock and roll is going. Yeah. You know, it wasn't just some, you know, the, you thought it was the Beatles, yeah. you know, tapping your toes, you know, and smiling and playing the song. The Who, you didn't know who to look at, you know? Yeah. Pete's like windmilling and jumping around and stuff and stabbing his amp and, and, and Keith is like an octopus, you know? Yeah. And, and Roger's flinging his mic 20 feet out over the audience and stuff like that and somehow never hits anybody with it. Right. And John Entwistle just standing there, but his fingers are flying a mile a minute. And they're all dressed up really, you know, in costumes and stuff. And you're like, man, this is the most entertaining thing I've ever seen, you know? And how are we going to top that? And from then on, I was like, any opportunity I can to smash a guitar, I'm going to take it. <clears throat> and then Cream came on. And they had these painted instruments, you know, which I hadn't seen before. Right. You know, did, you know I always thought he played the standard Les Paul. And now yeah. he's playing Les Paul Jr., you know, or not a Les Paul Jr., but we, what we call the Mary Ford guitar. Yeah, yeah, know? right. Yeah, the <laughs> and, SG. Look, yeah, right. The, yeah, the SG. And they and they had their hair permed, mm -hmm. all really big, you know. Yeah. Had the, Eric had an afro. He had a blonde right. afro. And they played two songs. They played "I'm So Glad" and 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 another song. They didn't play "I Feel Free" for some reason, which was the single. Yeah. Off of their first record, uh, and it was after that that they started doing a series of gigs at the Cafe A Go Go, you know, a little underground club, yeah. where I saw like all of these blues players and where I saw Cream and I stood and I sat, made sure I got there early, sat in the very front row. And this was a small club set up, you know, set up pointing at the na the narrow way. In other yeah, words, yeah, yeah. it's really wide, but the stage is in the center, mm -hmm. pointing at the other wall. And there's only maybe five rows of seats, and then everyone's sitting out this way. And I'm like six feet from his amp every single show, right? With my ears ringing, you know. Oh yeah. But I don't care. I'm just I'm staring at his hand the entire show, watching him play that guitar. Years later, you know, I'm uh, I'm not living in Woodstock yet, but I'm up in Woodstock, and someone contacts me and says, "Jackie Lomax has Eric Clapton's guitar, and he wants to sell it." Right. So I went over to Jackie's house, and I, and he shows me the guitar, and the guitar is in just horrible shape. Mm -hmm. He'd been using it as a lap guitar. Right. Replace replace the old bridge with a wooden bridge. Yeah. The action was like this. He'd been using it as a lap guitar. Wow. As a slide guitar. The paint was all chipped off of it. You know, the back of it, almost all the paint came off, scraped off by like belt buckles that right. Eric had worn. And the paint at the, you know, right at the, near the headstock was all worn off. And the wood was like balsa wood because he had sweated so right. much onto that part of the neck. And eventually, after I bought the guitar, the headstock snapped off right. and had to, had to be replaced. But he wanted $500 for it. He had so little regard for the guitar at that point. He wanted $500. He said, maybe I'll buy it back from you someday. And I, right. I said to myself, fat chance. Right. And so I acquired the guitar and I uh, got an artist friend of mine to retouch the paint job and seal it. It had never been sealed. That's why all the paint had been coming yeah. off 
and uh, and eventually the headstock snapped off, and I had to have that replaced. And I played that guitar for a long time. And in the late 80s, I was playing in Japan, and a guy approached me, and he had an exact replica of the guitar. Yeah. He had gone and gotten the same model year SG. Right. And painted it from pictures that he found in a magazine and gifted me the guitar. Wow. And after that, I pretty much played that guitar exclusively. Right. Because um, the Fool, the original guitar, I think they had taken some windings off the pickup to give it a sharper sound. Right. So when you compared the two, the, the replica had just had a more full-bodied sound right. than the original. So I began to play the replica. And then in the mid-90s, I get in trouble with the IRS. <laughs> and I had to auction the guitar off. Right. <laughs> in order to get out of the tr out of trouble with the IRS. This was after Eric's original auction, where mm -hmm. Brownie went for like $550,000. Right, right. And so I got involved with Saw the Beats, did their first kind of online musical auction. They did a terrible jobs. <laughs> right. <laughs> it was awful, an awful experience. So I don't know exactly where that guitar is now, but I'm not sure. Uh, I do have the rep. I do still have the replica. The well, you know, that's a, you know, a lot of times, you know, like I've I've played Rory Gallagher's guitar. I've played Peter Green's. I've played, uh, you know, I played Blackie Eric Clapton's Strat, and a lot of times, if they're not really maintained, they're not in great condition. They're not really as instruments. They look the same. You're like, oh my god, this thing has got to be magical. And then you play it, and it's kind of, you just go, okay. Mm. Thing needs a little bit of work, maybe some frets and, you know, but uh, again, Todd, I, I cannot thank you so, enough for doing this, man. It's like, it's a, it's an honor of a lifetime for me to talk to you and, and, and share stories. I mean, you just, you just one of my heroes and, 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 you know, it's always nice when you meet your heroes and we've met a couple times before, but um, when, when your heroes are nice guys, you know, that's always a big deal. Because I, I, have, I have, I've met a couple of my heroes and I wish, I wish I just, just, ah, I should have just stayed over there. But uh, <laughs> I think well, we all have I have to say, Steve Lukather always said that you're one of the nicest guys in the world. And this has confirmed that for me as well. So, you know, it's been a real pleasure and let's do it again sometime. Let's do it again. Ladies and gentlemen, again, what can I say? Todd Rundgren. This has been live from Nerdville. Thank you very much. Until next time.